good to be here this morning for sure. Um, I need your prayers. If you would, say a quick prayer for me that God would guide this message. Um, he has. I'm going to be back in Galatians, but it depends on how he leads and exactly how this goes. So I'm in great need of the Lord's mercy this morning. If you would, though, go ahead and turn to Galatians 6. And last time, it was in the end of October, I preached, we got down through the first five verses of Galatians 6. So we're going to pick up there in verse 6. Um, let me open with prayer. Father, I, Lord, you know that I am weak, that I need your strength, I need your guidance, I need your power to preach this message. Lord, as it would be worthless without it. God, I pray for your Holy Spirit to deliver this message through me. God, that I would just be the mouthpiece, but that you would have the message, that you would own the message. I pray for the people who are here, God, that you would open their ears, open their hearts, that they could hear this, that they could be encouraged, that they could be instructed, Lord, that they could have their eyes and their hearts turned to you through your words, God, through through the word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just going to pick right up here in, in Galatians 6.6. 6. He says, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. It, it, backing up to verse 2, it says, To bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We talked about that last time. We're to bear one another's burdens. Now he's going to give a specific way that you can do that. Um, he gives a very specific instructions on how Christians are to do this. And it's, He who is taught the Word, share with Him who teaches. In other words, those who are receiving the benefit of hearing the Word of God taught should share their earthly temporal possessions with those who teach it. One way to bear the burdens of those who teach and those who lead the people of God is to bear their financial burdens or to help bear their financial burdens. <clears throat> this, is a, this is a message that none of us are extremely comfortable talking about. If you, you can, I mean, it's just not, it's not in our... I, I don't know why. It just isn't. Um, but the Apostle Paul brought it up here, and he brought it up regularly. And so I'm going to do that today. Um, when Jesus sent out the 70 disciples to preach the gospel, you remember that? He sent with them nothing. He said, don't take anything. Go, you 70, go. No money, no food, you just go. He said, remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. And Jesus is talking specifically in that case about preaching the gospel. The laborer is worthy of his wages. And that principle, by the way, applies to many areas in life, um, labor in general. This is something that we as Christians should have right. We need to make sure that we have this right in our day-to-day -day lives. If someone does a job and it is worthy of a payment, pay them. 
period. Pay them. Now, there's going to be times when somebody, a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ, says, no, I want to give that to you. That's different. But it should be in your heart to at least offer. It should not be in your heart as an entitlement that, oh, well, I'm, we're, we're in the same church. They should give that. Or you're a Christian, I'm a Christian. That, that's not the way that should work. And then on the other hand, you may want, it may be in your heart to give that. And that's fine too. But it, the, in general though, even amongst outside the church, there are Christians, professing Christians, who choose not to pay for the work that was given to them. They have somebody come do a job. Maybe it's a roof. Maybe it's a driveway. I don't know. It could be anything. And then they don't pay. Guys that work for themselves probably know this better than I do. They do a job. They expect to get paid. And they don't. Right? It happens a lot out there. As Christians, we need to be sure that we understand that the workman is worthy of his wages. Pay the job for what it's worth. But specifically here, Jesus is talking about those who he was sending out. The labor he was referring to was preaching the word of God. He's saying that the people who are benefiting from the preaching would provide for them. Now Paul is saying the same thing here in Galatians. And if you turn over to 1 Timothy... He says it again, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. He's quoting Jesus there. The laborer is worthy of his wages. And if you turn back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? So in other words, there is labor going on with the preaching of the word. And, and what he's saying here is there needs to be support of that. The reality of the situation um, currently, and it looks like it's nothing new as you read these instructions in the Scriptures, um, is that people tend to take the preaching of the Word for granted when they have it. Um, they also tend to take the guidance and counsel of a shepherd for granted until it is greatly needed. And then sometimes that's when the realization occurs that uh, this, is, this is very much, uh, it's a very high need. Um, the teaching of the Word of God is necessary to the church. I think everybody here probably believes that, probably knows that. It is necessary for you and for me. I, I can't tell you how many times, and this is just me, and Randy has counseled a whole lot more people than I have, but I can't tell you how many times I've had to counsel people, or I've been called to counsel people for various problems, various things going on in their life, most of which could have been avoided had they been sitting in church under the teaching of the Word of God. 
I had one of those just recently, and that was my main counsel is you need to get in church and be under the Word of God. Why? Because it is a, it is a necess- necessity. We need to hear it preached and often. Why? Because we're sinners in our flesh. We need reminded of how to live. We need conviction of what we've done wrong. I think, I'm thankful for Caleb this morning. I was under conviction. And at one point you're going, I don't like this. But at the other point, I'm so thankful I was here to hear his message in equipping hour this morning. Because it brought me conviction. Which what? Brought me to repentance that I didn't even know I needed had I not been here. The preaching of the Word is extremely important. John Piper said, Worship will become shallow. Affections will become frothy. And obedience will languish where the whole counsel of God is not taught. You don't believe that? Go find a church where the whole counsel of God isn't taught and see if those things aren't true. You'll have, you might have a lot of people. And then it's amazing. I've been to several places where it'll be this huge crowd and as soon, it's like, I don't know if they leave while the pastor is praying the closing prayer or what, but you turn around and nobody's there. Why? They don't have any real relationships because of the preaching of the, they're not bound, they're not binding the relationships based on the Word of God. So it becomes surface level. And that leads to the point of this verse, which is that those that carry this burden of teaching the Word of God, and shepherding the flock of God need freedom and time to, to, to prepare for this task. And this includes not only financial giving, this includes not only temporal giving, but an understanding of the flock that there is time needed for sermon and lesson preparation and for prayer over those sermons and lessons that are being provided. It's important that we, that we understand that. It's important that we understand that... Randy is set aside time to prepare a sermon, and Paul has, and that we give them that time, um, that we at re- the, we're at least mindful of that time that is necessary to do that. And it also includes the fact that pastors should be paid so that they can better devote that time to this task. And of course, some may not require this, some may not even... Um, desire this like the apostle paul the apostle paul continued to make tents all throughout his ministry and he had a specific reason for that but that is not that that would be the exception rather than the norm i think or at least we should have this opportunity or this offer that the workman could be paid for his wages or could be paid his wages that are due Um, so those that desire full-time ministry that should be our goal as a church. That should be our goal is to have, and right now we don't have one. And our goal should be as a church to provide enough financial assistance that we could have. And then maybe as we grow and the Lord provides, maybe there would be more. But it should be a goal. And this leads to an uncomfortable question. And that is, are you giving to the Lord's work? Are you giving to the church? That's how this is achieved. It doesn't happen 
by the tax dollars. The government's not going to come in and support a pastor for us. And the government's not going to come in and support our work in the ministry and our bills that have to be paid and all that. No, it's going to be given by the people who attend, by the people who are hearing and benefiting from the Word of God. And I'm thankful that we have many faithful givers in this church. We don't see it. The elders of this church do not see who gives and who does not give. And that's for a reason. It's so that we don't are not tempted. I hope we wouldn't do it, but we wouldn't be tempted to sway one way or the other based on who's giving. We wouldn't be tempted to change a message based on that. So we don't know. But we do know. It's obvious because we have this we do have this nice building. And if you, anybody was here when we moved, it was a concern on the amount of rent that it was going to be. It was a great increase from where we were. And God has provided through his people and we're very thankful for that. And we're very thankful that we are able to to give some compensation to some of our elders. But we don't know. I don't so I don't know um so we don't actually see who gives. And so when I preach this sermon, only you and the Holy Spirit will know if you should be commended or convicted. Because I don't know, and none of the other elders know, but God knows, and you know. Martin Luther said this, he said, When Satan cannot suppress the preaching of the gospel by force, He tries to accomplish his purpose by striking the ministers of the gospel with poverty. And so take this admonishment from the word of God and examine your giving. Examine your priorities through giving. Spurgeon said, give as you love and measure your love by your gift. And in verse 7, he says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. What does this mean? God is not mocked. In this context, what does that mean? We heard all about the fool this morning. And that that term would easily be applied to those who have said in their heart, there is no God. God is not mocked. And there is many who try to mock God, and that's going to come to an end. But in this context, it's different. Right? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. He's talking about giving of your temporal possessions to God. Well, first it means that if you treat the Word of God with scorn, by not supporting its ministers, then you will regret it. And I would say that's not just talking about financially. Um, I had the, the privilege, the honor, rather, to preach Brother Don's funeral this week and one of the things that I remember about him most and this is what I said in in this service I said he would sit at the back of that it was in the other building and he would sit at the back because he he didn't like anybody behind him Um, but he was the most encouraging man that maybe I've ever preached in front of he would he was you could tell it's like I told them it was like he would. I, I thought about this later. I should have said it then. But I, it, it would almost feel like when Moses was holding his hands up and Aaron and her had to come along and prop them up. That's how he felt back there. 
And that is a great, you, you don't have any idea how much of an encouragement just being here is for the ministers. Being here consistently and listening and, and just by, by giving us your support, just and the facial expressions he would give, the amens he would give, it was a big blessing. And so that's what it's talking about as well as the temporal things. So, if you, don't, if, you, if you treat the Word of God with scorn by not supporting its ministers, then you will regret it. The reap and sow word picture here has two sides. First, it can be applied to the pastors. If we are faithfully preaching the Word of God and leading His sheep, then they are sowing good seed and they will receive a harvest. And I think it's both spiritual and temporal in that case. We have an opportunity to be a part of that harvest. We can be a part of the harvest that is coming with the preaching of the Word. Every single one of us can be a part of that harvest. It doesn't, it, somebody plants a seed. Somebody else waters. Somebody else harvests. We're all in this together. So it, the, if the preacher is faithful to the Word of God, he will eventually see fruit from that. If he is unfaithful to the preaching of the Word of God, at some point the fruit of that is going to show up as well. And I think we see that a lot today as you see just different preachers fall. The, they lose their congregation. They turn away from Christ in general because they weren't faithful to the Word of God. The second thing is it can be applied to those who are hearing the Word of God. You're going to reap what you sow. If you treat the Word of God with scorn, at some point you will regret it. Not appreciating the teaching of the Word enough to support it financially and prayerfully will soon realize the lack of effort in the planting will yield a terrible crop. I thought about this and I wonder how many churches are dying today. Does anybody know of any dying churches? There's a lot of them. And some of them are dying, but may have a lot of numbers. But we also see a lot of churches just dwindling. You can drive around if, during church time and look at the amount of cars at places that were once vibrant. And they're dwindling and they're dying. Why? I wonder if it wasn't because they had this problem 10 or 20 years ago. I wonder if there was at one point God sent them a pastor that was preaching the Word and they didn't like it enough, so they ran him off. There's lots of places like that. God has sent men. He sent faithful men into places. And maybe they didn't do the right kind of programs. Or maybe they weren't, didn't have enough charisma. Or maybe they made the wrong deacon mad. And they ran them off. And now ten years later, twenty years later... They're reaping what they sow. Some of those churches may need to die. That's the reality of it. Sometimes that's hard. There may be believers in there. And yeah, and there may be. And maybe they need to find somewhere else where they can get connected and grow. Where the Word is preached and the Word is held of high esteem. And they just can't figure out, why, 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 why won't a pastor stay here? Well, maybe it has something to do with the fruit that you're producing. Maybe it has something to do with the seeds that you sowed in times past. 
because God is not mocked. In verse 8, he says, For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Again, this has many applications. You can take that verse and the applications in it, and it can apply to all areas of life. We could spend hours on the ways that that could apply. But we want to keep this in context. We're going to keep it talking about what Paul is talking about. And that's dealing with your giving. I heard one preacher say, I know God has your heart when He has your wallet. And that's true to a large extent. What's important to you? There are three ways, I think, that you can really know what is important to people. You can find out, you can ask them questions what's important to you, and you'll hear one thing. And you can ask, you can just sit back and listen, and you'll hear another thing. The first is, what do they talk about? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What do you like to talk about? What gets you excited? You know, is it hunting, fishing, sports, cooking? And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But if that's all you want to talk about, and when the Word of God, or when the Word comes up, or something spiritual comes up, you feel yourself kind of pulling away, there may be something there. So listening to what people talk about will tell you what's important to them. The, other, the second thing is to see what they spend their money on. What is, your, what is your financial investments? Are you investing any money in things eternal? Or are you investing all of your money on temporal things? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with investing in temporal things. Nothing wrong with that. But there is something majorly wrong with investing everything in temporal things. And then the third thing is where you spend your time. Are you investing all your times on temporal things? Or are you investing any time on things eternal? Just remember, whatever we sow, we will reap. And then in verse 9 he says, And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. You know, agriculture takes patience. I understand this well. I teach agriculture. And by the way, teaching takes patience too, if anybody doesn't know. So, double double for me. Um, but agriculture takes patience. Do you guys remember that thing they called the Chaz up there in Washington? Yeah, it's called the Chaz. I don't remember what it stands for, but it was this little community that they had roped off basically in the middle of Seattle. And it was, we were going to make, they were going to make their own little, I don't know, culture, organization, combi- I don't know, some kind of cult. I don't know what was going on exactly, but they were going to, they got the police out of there and we're going to, this is our society. We're going to own this. Well, it lasted a few weeks. Terrible things happened um, while I was there without police. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes, so you know what was going to happen. Well, afterwards, they had lots of pictures. My favorite picture of the thing was a community garden that they planted. They put down cardboard, and then they put some soil on top of it, and had signs and stuff. There was a couple different ones. One said it was for indigenous people only. 
Um, that was only people that could take from that. And the other one said, this is open to everybody. I'm like, well, that's great if you want a handful of dirt. Because there was nothing growing in that. I think they really believed that they were going to plant this garden and in just a few days, we're going to have all the food we want. That's how easy it is, right? I really think there's people out there that believe that's how agriculture works. It can't. Well, one of our senators, I don't remember which one, said, farming's not that hard. You put in a seed in the ground and it grows. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the way it was before the fall of man. It's not that way now. We have these things called thorns and thistles and droughts and pestilence and bugs and raccoons and everything out there is fighting against you from producing food. It takes patience. It takes knowledge. It takes work. Real agriculture takes patience. You can't put a seed in the ground. It takes months before you have a fruit. A planted planted seed takes time to sprout. I know when we plant our garden every year, it's like every day I'm out there, nothing yet. And you go and look, and you look every day. Why? Because you're excited. You're ready to see this come up. And sometimes it doesn't come up. That's tough. That was a bad seed. But when you plant good seeds, eventually it does, take t- it does come up. And then it takes time and work to tend to it. And then it takes more time. And then finally, you see fruit. And it takes more patience, more time for the fruit to ripen. You can pick it early, and you just ruined it if you pick it early. If you don't let it mature on the vine, if you don't wait long enough, it's not any good. You have to be patient. And sometimes all that time without seeing the fruit can grow wearisome. We get impatient. We want to help the seed out of the ground. Or we want to pick the fruit before it's ripe. And so it is with the work, with the work, with God's work. You know, if a seed, we plant green beans every year, and it's always fun to watch them trying to pop out of the ground. And you'll see a little crack forming, and it's pushing, and it's very tempting to just give it a little help. You just break that soil away. If you do that, you know what's likely going to happen? It's going to die. God has designed that plant to strengthen itself by pushing itself out of the soil. And He's designed us the same way. We're going to have trials. And sometimes those trials are to make us strong enough to handle what's coming next. Sometimes those trials are what makes us strong enough to help the other people who's coming behind us. We have to have patience. When, God, when, when we're doing God's work, sometimes we want to push the ball up the court a little too fast and try to make something happen instead of wait on God and let Him make something happen. Which, by the way, if we were able to force it and get something to happen, it's temporal. It's not good fruit. But when God does it, it's permanent. And it is good fruit. So we don't want to lose heart with doing this good. Time makes us lose heart so much. And we're so fast in this culture. We want results now. But if we don't lose heart, and we do remain patient, 
then we will see those fruits eventually. Which, by the way, I think sometimes we don't see the fruits for our own good as well. If but to keep us humble. I know myself well enough to know that if I saw a lot of fruit, if I saw a lot of people respond to the gospel and come to Christ, I am afraid of what that would do to my heart and how I would swell up with pride. And so I, I trust in God that He'll do what He said with His words. And when I preach the gospel, when I share the gospel with somebody, I fully believe that they will be saved. But I also realize I may not get to see that on this side of heaven. Or I might not get to see it extremely soon. The results are in God's time, not in ours. Look at verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We have a promise that if we sow good, fe- good seed, we will reap rewards, especially spiritual rewards. And because of this promise, and because God has given us those instructions, let us do good to all. Let us do good to all, all mankind. If we have an opportunity to help someone, let's help them. Let's be the feet and the hands of Christ. Let's go to people where they are. Let's meet their needs. And especially those that are our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we have the ability to ease a suffering sister or to ease the suffering of a brother in any way, we should be running to that opportunity. If we have the ability to help anybody else, we should be looking at that as an opportunity that, hey, this could open a door that they could hear the gospel and they could become our brother or sister in Christ. And now, as we get to verse 11, we're going to change gears just a little bit here. Um, And I, I, I believe God, I think we're going to actually finish this book today. In verse 11, Paul, you remember throughout the book, he has been pleading, admonishing, rebuking them of their works-based salvation. And he's calling them to Christ. He's calling them to something greater, which is grace and faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what, so we're going to see kind of here a final plea, a final point, exclamation point on that whole book. And in verse 11, he says, see what large letters I am writing to you. With my own hand. So most of the letters that Paul wrote, he dictated. You guys know what dictate is? It's where he would say it and somebody else would write it. He would have a scribe with him that would do the writing. He didn't do that with the book of Galatians. He wrote it himself. And the, the emphasis is on that is that he wrote this with his own hand to signify the urgency and importance of it. It'd be kind of like if I'm if I, today I would if I want to send a letter to everybody, it'd be real easy. I'll just type it up. I can make multiple copies and send it to you. But if I wanted to really, I mean, really wanted to be personal, I'd handwrite it. Well, that's what this is. Paul's saying this is so personal and emotional that I wanted to write this with my own hand. In verse twelve, it says, "It is those who want to make a good." Sh- it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So he's going back to this problem that he's been dealing with the entire book. He's going, 
the ones that are trying to tell you to get circumcised, they're trying to bring you back under that law. It is for a good showing in the flesh, and that is it. There is no spiritual advantage to this. It's not about the Spirit with them. It's about the flesh. The legalist is always looking and pointing at the exterior. What can we require and what can we do that everybody else will see? In this case, Paul uses the example of circumcision. That was the thing at the time. But the Judaizers, they wanted to glory in their flesh. They wanted to claim Christ but still boast in the works that they were doing. We see this all the time today. When we were, when we were looking at this place to buy it, the people that were here before, the, the, guy, the pastor that was here before, he made several comments about Randy's beard. Why? Because if you're not clean shaven, you're not holy. What? And there's other people, you can find them no problem, that says all you clean shaven men out there aren't holy. I think you'd make a better case for that, but that's a side note. Either way, your facial hair has nothing to do with your holiness. Same way with how long your sleeves are, how long your skirt is. No matter what, it always is something that's real easy to point at, isn't it? It's always something real easy to say, this is what we see. And they want, so they want to claim Christ, but still boast in the works. But then they want to bring the others into bondage as well. If you think about religion today that follows work salvation, you always see that. It's always something pointing at the exterior. And it can be things that are given to us by God. Things like baptism, communion, great commandments of God that will not save you. They will not save you. What saves you? Jesus. We'll get, we'll get to that. Jesus, see that... The legalist is always looking and pointing at the exterior, but Jesus is always looking and pointing at the heart. What is your motive? What is your love? See, circumcision was only a picture. It was only a picture of something to come, and it was the circumcision that's going to be made without hands. That means man can't do it. How is that circumcision made? It's made in the heart. It's removing the flesh from the heart. He said, I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. Who's going to do that? Is your circumcision? Is your baptism? Is your long sleeves? Is your beard? Is your clean shaven face? No. It's Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit who's going to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And if He hasn't done that, you don't have it. Period. That's what Paul is saying. I wrote this to you in my own hand. Why? Because you've got to get this. If you don't get this, you have nothing. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. These guys telling you to do this, they don't keep the law. These guys telling you to do this, they don't have a heart of flesh. The inside is wicked. 
How do you keep the law? What is the law? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Those guys doing the circumcision, these Judaizers coming in behind Paul, did they do that? Absolutely not. So how can they say anything about keeping the law? They don't keep it. They found an exterior part of the law, and they focused on that. Why? Paul says that they may boast in your flesh. They're trying to keep the Jews happy by keeping that commandment. They're trying to play both sides of the fence. It's like Caleb said this morning, there is no neutral ground. You're going to be on one side or the other. We see it a lot today in different arenas. I want to be a Christian, but I also want to be accepted in high academia. So I'm going to blend the Scriptures with this demonic theory called evolution. It doesn't fit together. I want to be a Christian, but I'm not really ready to let go of my religion, so I'm going to keep some of my legalistic rituals. That's boasting in the flesh. And before I read verse 14, I want to remind you, I don't know if everybody was here, who was here, who wasn't, but when I started the book of Galatians, I gave a big part of my testimony because it was by reading the book of Galatians that God saved me. Um, I had left a meeting in a church that I used to be a part of And when I left there, I had a realization that I knew nothing about the Scriptures. And what was crazy about that is, all growing up, my dad was a preacher. I knew, if I, I mean, just to talk Scriptures with all my friends, I knew way more than they did. So I thought I was pretty knowledgeable. And when I left there and I was driving home, it hit me, I had never read through a whole book of the Bible. Not one time. I had read just verses here, verses there, verses here. And I had this little idea of what God was and how I was to please Him by those pieced out verses. And so I thought, I'm going to read a book. And this is the, this is the reality. This, the, I, am not, I am not even exaggerating this. So I was going to pick a book. I'm like, well, I'm not going to pick a really long one because I probably won't even finish it. And, but I don't want to pick like the shortest one, so I'm not going to pick like Jude, because that's lame. So I'm just kind of thumbing through, hmm, Galatians, that's a pretty short one. It's got six chapters, I'll read it. <laughs> what, what man has in evil in his heart, God does for good. Because when I got through, I read through that whole thing. First time I'd ever read through a book. And I got to this verse right here, verse 14. And it says this. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That was 17 years ago. And it still hits me the same way it did then, like a two-by-four in between the eyes. I thought, I, and, and I wasn't a boastful person out loud. But I knew my heart. And I was full of pride in my religion. 
it was a false humility that I would put up front. But if I started arguing with people, the pride would come out. My knowledge of the Bible that I had never even read a full book of. You know, it is very possible that no man has ever had more knowledge of the Scriptures in this world other than Jesus than the Apostle Paul. That's why he wrote a big portion of the New Testament. He was extremely knowledgeable, highly educated in the Old Testament, and highly taught by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And what did he say? I will boast Jesus Christ. Why? Why Christ? Why do we boast in Jesus Christ? Well, turn over to Hebrews. I actually preached about this last week, or two weeks ago, at Gailey. And so, it just reminded me of that. Hebrews 1, verse 3 says, Who? It's talking about Jesus. Being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ is the brightness of the glory of God and the image of the person of God. What does that mean? It means that Jesus came in the flesh so that we can see God. See, God is spirit, so it's difficult to understand Him before Christ came. But when Jesus arrived, we can see two main things from His life and actions. We can see what God is like in a very tangible and physical way. Like when He's dealing with His creation, how does He deal with it? Well, we can see that through Christ. And we can see how we're supposed to live. How we're supposed to live in dealing with the creation... Of Jesus, how we're supposed to live in dealing with our fellow man. We see it all with Christ walking amongst us. We see it perfectly. That's why He came. That's what it means. Upholding all things by the word of His power, it says. (laughs) This is Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the Chosen One. This is God Himself. That's come as we celebrate Christmas this year. Let us remember that he was born of a virgin. This is the we can't get it. We just cannot understand this. But he's not only the creator. He's not only the heir of all things, but he's also the sustainer. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Turn over there. Amazing. This is an amazing verse. Colossians 1. Verse 16, anybody that wants to say Jesus is not God, take a look at this. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or power. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things consist. Everything was created By Him. By who? By Jesus Christ. And by Him, everything is being held together. Visible and invisible. Every galaxy and mountain range, every molecule and atom that we have discovered, and the many subatomic particles that we don't even know about yet. 
It wasn't that long ago where they thought the cell was the smallest thing. And you can listen to Paul Wilson talk about all the stuff going on in that thing. He was talking the other day, something about the mitochondrian action that's something to do with this virus. I'm like, dude, I believe you. (laughs) Way above my pay grade. I've heard it said, and I believe it's 100% true, one cell, one human cell is more complicated than the space shuttle. I believe it 100%. And not only that, they work together. It's, it's incredible. Do you know the earth is orbiting the sun at approximately 67,000 miles an hour? Think about it. For it to make an orbit in a year, it's going a long way. 67,000 miles an hour. And it's spinning 1,000 miles per hour. And it is being held at that perfect distance by the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says thrones. This includes political offices. I said this at Gailey the other day. I said, from our perspective, politically speaking, chaos reigns. It looks like the wheels are falling off. And in a lot of ways they are. But understand this. Not a single person rises to any kind of power unless Christ puts them there. Dominions, principalities and powers. The angels and the demons are under His dominion. They're under His hand. Satan himself thinks he has power. But he is severely mistaken. I liked what Isaiah said a while ago when he taught He's nothing but a dog on a leash, I think is how he said it. That's exactly right. Christ has full, supreme power over Satan and all of his little minions. And Christ has full and complete power over every angel in heaven. He has full and complete power over every one of us. He is Lord of your life, whether you have accepted that or not. The question is, is He he your Savior? And then it says, when He had by Himself purged our sins. By Himself. No help from anyone or anything. Jesus hung on that cross alone until He said, it is finished. He does not need your help to purge your sins. And and you want to know something? It's a good thing He doesn't need your help. You know why? Because you can't help Him. Period. We have nothing to offer the perfect Lord of life. We don't have the ability to save ourselves. We don't have the ability to purge our own sins. That's why Jesus had to do it. That's why He had to be perfect. That's why He had to be born of a virgin. So He wouldn't be part of this curse. And then it says, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Sitting to signify that the job was indeed finished. He's no longer standing. He is sitting because the work is done. So turn back over to Galatians. And we will finish up. just want to read that verse again. 614, but God forbid that I shall boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I remember hearing once, I was extremely confused um, early on in my Christian life and trying to figure out what was a good church and what was a bad church and how to gather for worship and just all of these things. And there was a guy, and I was with Ronnie Qualls. You guys know him. Um, this ha- a lot of this happened together for us. And we were, he was talking to a guy and he asked, well, what do you preach? And the guy said, we preach Jesus and Him crucified. And I pray to God if there's nothing else ever remembered about any of my sermons that I preach Jesus and Him crucified. And I boasted in Him. And in verse 15 he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Your works will not save you. Circumcision goes all the way back to the Abraham. The covenant that Abraham had with God. God gave it to him. But it wasn't for the purpose of salvation. Abraham had faith before the circumcision. It was a picture of the removal of flesh. The removal of the fleshly nature of your heart. So circumcision doesn't matter. What does matter? The new creation. You must be regenerated By God the Holy Spirit, He's the one that has to change your heart. You must turn away from self-reliance. You must turn away from your works. Yield to Christ. And His works will save you. And then, when that happens, there's a change in you. There's a change inside you. Then your works will all of a sudden be of a pure heart. You aren't, won't be doing them to earn favor anymore. You'll be doing them not for salvation, but out of love for your Savior. And then out of love for your fellow man. Verse 16, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. And upon the Israel of God. Paul's closing here. He's saying, those of you that have done this, those of you that have put your faith in Christ, that He has changed, and you're not relying on yourself, but on Christ, peace and mercy will be on you. And verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. This goes back to the beginning of the book where they're questioning Paul's authority, and they're questioning Paul's apostleship, and they're giving all these questions, and he's saying, look, I've been persecuted for this. Don't question whether my motives are clear. Don't question whether I'm really serious about this. He had stripes all over his back, scars all over him. That's the marks of Jesus that he's talking about. Why? Because he was persecuted for Christ's sake. I am serious about this, he says. And then he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. And that's what I could say to you today. If you are in Christ, then the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. We have a great God. We serve a great Savior. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. We can serve Him with all love. Why? Because He has given us that as a gift. And if you don't know Him, I can't say this to you. 
Because he says there, brothers, this are, these are other Christians that he's talking to. If you don't know Jesus, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, maybe you know he's there. Maybe you can tell that he's working on your heart, but you haven't yielded to that. Let today be the day that you bow your knee, bow your heart to Christ. Let today be the day that you leave behind your self-righteousness, your ideas of favor towards God, of earning that favor, and trust in Jesus and Him alone. Because it's Him alone that can save. Let's pray. Father, I... God, I thank You that 17 years ago You put it in my heart to read this book. And I thank You that 17 years ago, as I know my eyes were blinded before that time, I thank You that 17 years ago You opened them that I could see truth. And I pray, God, and I ask You to forgive me for all the times I fell so short in between that time and I thank you that you held me anyway I thank you that you love me when I was unlovable and that you teach me when I'm unteachable God what an amazing God what an amazing Savior we have in Jesus I pray Lord that everyone here can experience that same love and that same faith. I pray, Lord, that we would take this and apply it, that we would be so grateful that it would flow out of us in our daily lives, that people would see the gratitude and the boastfulness we have for Christ. I pray that you would work that in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.